Good morning. morning. Glad to see all of you here this morning. And I appreciated the songs we had, Arlen. I don't know how many of you observed the headings in our songbooks, the themes of those songs. The, The third to last song we sang was Send the Light. Does anybody know what the theme of that song was, what that fell under, without looking? Said Mission. The next song we sang, Whosoever Will May Come. What do you think the theme of that was? Mission. Close. Evangelistic. And this last one, Teach Me Thy Truth. What was that one? Service. Mission. Evangelistic. Service. I, I love the theme. It goes right along with what I intend to preach this morning. And... Before I give you the title of my message here, just want to say it's good to be here. We weren't here last Sunday. We enjoyed, we were up in Traverse, or close to Traverse City, Michigan. We were at their, the Traverse City uh, Mennonite Church, and the, or Traverse Bay Mennonite Church, and Charlevoix had a camp out, and so we were invited there as a family, and I preached a number of times, so we enjoyed that. I know many of you were missing last week as well. It looked like, it sounded like it was kind of a skinny crowd here, so good to be with you again this morning, and glad to worship. Also, welcome to Visitors this morning, we're glad to have you here and just feel at home with us to, to worship. Shall we pray? We're grateful, Father, for what you've done for us. And Lord, we're also aware this morning of, of our mission, why we're here. And as we explore the, the word this morning, we would ask you, Lord, to teach us your truth and show us your ways. And Lord, not only show us your ways, but Lord, give us the, the faith to believe, the courage to step out and the willingness to serve where you've called us. And Lord, we pray that in every part of our service, you would be honored, you'd be glorified. We pray for those who could not be here this morning. Would you be with them, watch over them? And Lord, I just pray that all of us together could worship you in spirit and in truth today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. After giving you the themes of those songs, give you my, the title of my message this morning, which is A Vision Beyond Ourselves. A Vision Beyond Ourselves. Church fellowship is a blessing when it's going good. And I I understand we've had some difficulties in the last months. And sometimes the experience disappoints us. Maybe it's not what we want it to be. Uh, First John, he gives a description of what fellowship is. He says it's, first of all, begins with the Father, His Son, Jesus Christ, and then you and I are invited into that. And we first of all experience that relationship with God, an inner fellowship with him. And by that, we have a foundation to have fellowship with each other. So that's, that's the blessing we can experience in the church, where we find a sense of belonging. Most times, it can be a place of, of healthy uh, encouragement, friendship. There's good times together. It's also a good place when we have difficulties, when we have uh, loss. It's a good place to share those things together. So fellowship is something that God has given us for the church that's unique and it's a blessing. But I'm not going to talk about fellowship this morning. I just want to ask you the question, is fellowship just for our benefit and enjoyment? Is it just for our own encouragement and for our own filling our own needs? Or would God have a vision for that that's beyond our needs? I don't think we're unaware of an increasingly... um, changing culture that we live in not just western culture but worldwide but i would say 
largely Western. And for all the things we have and for all the, the wealth, for all the technology and all, all those things that should allow for more connectivity, we are living in a, in a time and an age where there is isolation, there is loneliness, there is despair. And we could say, how can that be when we have so much available? And yet we know that's the reality. Jonathan Haidt, who is a social psychologist at New York University's Stern School of Business, he's done some research, and he did an interview at the end of last year, end of 2022, with the Wall Street Journal. And as a psychologist, he's been researching what are some of the changes that have happened in our country in the last 10 years, since 2013. His analysis is that around, somewhere around 2013, and he says all of a sudden, but you know, nothing happens typically all of a sudden, but the awareness came about around 2013 that depression rates began to rise only among those who are part of Gen Z. Now, if you, are, if you were born after 1997, from about 1997 to 2012, which our youth kind of fall in that demographic, so you are part of Gen Z. If you're older than that, you're probably a millennial if you're in the next bracket, and then I think there's Generation X, and there's, you keep tracing it back. So it seems like every generation is somewhat defined by things that happen in that time. So around 2013, when Gen Z was starting to come of age and becoming teenagers and a little older than that, there was a skyrocketing of depression, especially among teen girls. So Jonathan Haidt, the psychologist, he concluded that some of the change was that in 2012, Facebook acquired Instagram, which brought many more people to the platform, especially uh, young people. Young people really flocked to Instagram. Also, some of the changes that happened was around 2010 was the, was the first, the iPhone 4 was the first phone that had a front-facing camera that could look at, at the user. That was enhanced with the iPhone 5, which happened in 2012. So right around 2012, 2013, you have the coming on of Instagram, and some of that you have this, um, this selfie era came about. I don't know if you remember first hearing the word selfie. I remember hearing President Barack Obama used the word, and it was, I don't know who coined it, but it was the selfie era, era, the time when we start to take pictures of ourselves because of the ability we had on our phones to do that. According to Jonathan Haidt, these visual platforms began to be a place where people posted their perfect life, and snapshots were put on of, of our, our curated lives, the best part of who we are was put on, on social media. And he said it, it began to foster a compare and despair syndrome in Gen Z. Because be, you begin to see what looks like reality all around you, and you compare it with your own life, and you despair. He also made the observation, he says, it seems social because you are communicating with people. But he said it's performative. You don't actually get social relationships. You get weak, fake social links. Now, that's just coming from a, a non-Christian uh, psychologist. Now, I don't want to spend a lot of time talking about technology necessarily, but I think we need to begin to understand the changes that have taken place in the last 10 years and how those changes are affecting uh, this generation in particular, generation Generation Z. Uh, someone I, I just heard recently was talking about one of the changes of the smartphone. He says, you know, the internet already revolutionized the world because everything was at our fingertips. But he says, you take the smartphone 
And he says it, it becomes like a narcissistic mirror. Think about that a little bit. Everything you look at on your phone is a reflection of your desires. Nothing, I mean, of course, we know things can pop up on our phones. But when we go to search for something, when we go to access, media, whatever it is, everything that we have at our fingertips is exactly what we want. Isn't it a bit ironic that we do call it a selfie era? Maybe it's more of a selfish era. But it's an age where everything is possible, but it tends to, it tends to feed the self and the self-desires. Now, I'm not here to bash technology because we know it has use, and I use it all the time. But as I think about how I grew up here at Sandy Ridge and how I grew up you know, in the 80s, the 90s, and many of you are much older than that and have way more experience, but as I think about the way we've approached technology over the years, whether it was through entertainment, TV, radio, all those different things, I think we often tend to look at it in terms of the bad influences what's bad coming out of, those, out of those platforms. And that's still true today. One thing that's changing though in technology as I see it is that not only is it, is it the content, but the very platforms are building, uh, they're reshaping the way we see life. So the fact that I have access and I maybe use that access all the time, how is that shaping the way I approach relationships? How is it, how is it shaping the way I see the world? And you see, in a sense, this despair and this loneliness and this isolation is possibly the fruit of so much of a focus on what I want and my own, filling my own needs. And, and you, you get where I'm going with that. So in a sense, this generation, and I'm not, and yeah, youth, hear me well, I'm not being critical because you can't help the generation you're growing up in. We've all been shaped by different things. But I think we have to be aware that there are shaping influences that are, are they're making a difference in how we're approaching life and how we're approaching church and how we're approaching relationships. So, so let's not be unaware that these things have happened and they've been happening very quickly and they're not done. We're just now starting to see AI coming in in a, in a major way and even, even the national news media and, and government officials are concerned because what all is possible and what all could be good but what all could be very bad there as well. And so where again, probably the next 10 years are gonna just be another 10 years of tremendous change. I don't know how that's all gonna look, but so I know we've seen a lot of change, but I think we are in a continually changing world. So let's be aware of how is that shaping the way we approach life. Now, of course, we can make some, uh, maybe make some personal applications for that, but that's not where I'm going with it this morning. Remember my title, A Vision Beyond Ourselves. So if that is what is shaping this current generation, we are having we are living in a culture where there is so much addiction, whether it's gambling addictions online, pornography, you know, you list all those different addictions that are being fed as a way to try to bring satisfaction. If that's the world we're living in today, then what do we have to offer as the church? How do we begin to look at who we are as the body of Christ and realizing that um, this isolation, this loneliness may be an opportunity. We can be concerned about it for ourselves, but it may also be the place where God has put us as the church in a very meaningful way. And I think you already know what I'm talking about. Walk into any airport, uh, public place, and everyone's on their phones. And the contact between people is very limited in our day-to-day. -day. Much, uh, much, 
much change has happened. I also think of some of the addiction, other addictions. Um, we're not unaware, even in our community, that opioids, drugs are just, they're rampant right now. And um, there's so much happening. The breakdown of our social structures. We don't see two-parent homes very much anymore. Uh, most people don't have regular church attendance. So the stability in our, in our society is very weak. There's, very, there's a lack of stability. So these are perilous times, but I don't think we need to be afraid of that. Um, we were warned about it. Paul warned about it in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 to 5. I'm not going to spend much time on this. I just want to point it out. He says, this, also know, this know also that in the last days, perilous times shall come. Now, I wondered about that. Perilous for who? Is it perilous for Christians? Is it just a perilous time to be alive in general? Um, I don't know what all he means, but, he, but then he goes on to describe what people will be like. He said, for men shall be lovers of their own selves. Sorry, I missed something there. Covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof, from such turn away. Now he says, uh, notice the two things. When I was talking to you about the, the uh, absorbing of self, in verse 2 he, said, he starts that list by saying, men shall be lovers of their own selves. Well, isn't that just getting worse? Don't we see the ability for that to become, uh, or for people to be able to act on that that much easier? And at the end of verse 4, after that whole list of all these things that are, that are ungodly uh, behavior, he says, Lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God. Isn't lovers of pleasures yet again a love for self? It's for what I want. It's the pleasing of self. So in the last days, in these perilous times, there is an exaltation of self. There's a desire to feed the pleasures of self. And then verse 5, having a form of godliness. I, I don't quite, as I read the list, you know, it looks pretty ungodly to me. But somewhere in, all the, in, the, in the last days, there will be something that even though it's of the self, it's going to have a certain form of godliness. But he says, denying the power thereof. I think that's key. When the Holy Spirit is not working in someone's life, you cannot produce, there is no power. There's no power to overcome. There's no power to live for God. But just notice here the, the exaltation of the self. So what do we have to offer as a church? to the broken among us who are living in despair and isolation because, brothers and sisters, they're your neighbors. They live in our towns. It's not just in the big cities, but they are around us, and they are, they're hungry for something different, and they are feeling isolation and loneliness. Do we have the answers, and is our vision for the church big enough for this? And when I described to you at the beginning what God has given us in fellowship for the church, I want to propose to you this morning that fellowship has a greater purpose than just ourselves and our own enjoyment. Um, there is the story of a man by the name of Gary. Gary Kildall. Maybe some of you have heard this story already. He was the owner of Digital Research, Inc., DRI, back in the early 80s, in fact, the late 70s, I believe it was. And he had developed and operating system for computers. Now this is right at the time where we were going from mainframe computers to, I think it was Apple that first conceived of the PC, the personal computer. You could literally have a computer small enough to be in your home on a desk. And that was unheard of to this point. And so he had come up with an operating system and 
right around this time, I think Apple had already got a PC going, and IBM, another company, uh, they wanted to catch up. They knew they had to get a PC on the market, and so they were aware of digital research, this company, and so they came looking up Gary, and they wanted to buy his operating system. It was the best thing out there, and they wanted to buy his operating system and, and get, get this PC made and get it on the market as soon as possible. Well, there's different, there's different versions of the story, how this all went, but Gary, for whatever reason that day, decided to, to fly. To, he was in, uh, I forget what city he was in, but he flew to Oakland that day, California. He knew IBM was coming, but he decided, well, they, you know, they don't have anywhere else to go. He had this trip planned. He decides to fly to Oakland that day. So IBM shows up, and they want to talk to him about buying his operating system. Well, there's no one there. I think his wife and maybe a couple of employees, just a small company, were there. And IBM wasn't satisfied. They weren't able to make any kind of an arrangement and deal. And, and, uh, and so they started looking around. Well, they, <clears throat> within the next couple of weeks, they found out about a young man by the name of Bill Gates, who was also an entrepreneur and was working on a system. In fact, I don't think he even had his system complete, but he, was, he got some things from another company as well. Bill Gates, who had started a company called Microsoft, uh, was there when IBM called. And he was able to offer them a processor, an operating system, that we all know about today. Microsoft is still today. How many of you ever heard of Gary Kildall? How many of you ever heard of Bill Gates? Gary had the tool in his hand that could have made him a multi-billionaire, which we would still talk about him today. Gary was unable to have a vision for what he had and to see what the future held. Who could have conceived that every person would have a computer? That's that's not going to be necessary. You know, it's for businesses. It's the big mainframes. You know, it's, and in his mind, he, he could not understand that there was a possibility for technology that went far beyond his conception. Well, Bill Gates was not that kind of man. He had a vision for something that was, that was possible. And of course, we know how the story goes. At the end of about 10 years later, about 1990 or 91, digital research, DRI, owned by Gary Kildall, went out of business. And I think he died a number of years later, somewhat of a bitter man for what had happened. Now, I'm not suggesting that we're trying to become billionaires or that that's the key to success. But can we have a vision for the church that sees something beyond maybe just what we experience here? That sees that there is, there is something here that the world needs and that God would love to use in us. Turn your Bibles to John chapter 17. I want to give you a glimpse of what Jesus saw when he was praying for the church on his last night here on earth. Sometimes we call this the high priestly prayer, but it's, Jesus is praying this, I think, in the garden right before he was taken into custody. And he, he gives us a bit of a vi- what his vision was for the church and for us today. John chapter 17, we're going to jump down to verse 9. This is his prayer for the church. He says, I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to you, Holy Father. Keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. 
Those whom you gave me I have kept, and none of them is lost except the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they, be, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. I'm going to stop there because my, my screen actually goes to the next part of this passage. Stop there for a little bit. I want you to observe a few things here. So as he's praying there, you notice in verse 11 he says, his prayer is that they may be one as we are. He's talking about how God the Father and how Jesus and the Holy Spirit, we know how that works in the Trinity. There's a oneness. There's a unity there. And he says his prayer was that they would experience that as well. Now, we, I think we help foster that unity through, through fellowship, through the way we connect in the church. But then you go down in verse 13. Another thing he prays for us, he says, is that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. That really stood out to me as I was, as I was studying over this passage. That they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. His joy is only possible. That's one of the fruits. It's a fruit of the Spirit. The only way you and I have joy is if we are getting it through the Father, through his Son, and through the Holy Spirit. That's the only way you have joy. Uh, He does not intend for us to find our joy just in our fellowship. That's a blessing. Church life is a good thing. It helps feed feed good things in our lives. But our source of joy is not to be fed off one another. Joy comes from him. He says, I want my joy to be yours. So if you're not finding joy in your heart this morning, let me ask you, what source are you going to for it? What's going to actually give you joy? It's not something that you're going to feed off of someone else, but he says, I want, he prayed that we would have his joy. We would know it in a personal way. And then he's also prayed for us that he would keep us from the evil one. Part of him, uh, part of us becoming part of being his children is he says, he's not praying that we'd be taken out of the world. You know, it would, it would feel good sometimes to just be free of what we're facing here on this earth. That'll, that'll come someday. That's part of the promise we have. But he prayed that he would, we would be kept from the evil one. So Jesus is concerned for you that you experience oneness. He's concerned for you that you have joy. And he's concerned about protecting you from the evil one. That's comforting to me. That's the first part here. Now let's keep going here. The next part. Verse 16. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. <clears throat> as you sent me into the world... I also have sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself that they also may be sanctified by the truth. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you gave me, I have given them that they may be one just as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. How many times does he talk about praying for us to be one, that we would be one? And then at the last here, he says that you may be made perfect in one. So he also prays that our perfection is happening within the context of, of unity, in the context of the church. It's meant to be something we are working on together. We are becoming more and more like him, but it's happening in unity. But here's where I want us to focus this morning. He says twice. First of all, he says in verse 21, that the world may believe. Unity is so that the world 
And oneness is so that the world may believe, that the world may know. We are the visible representation of the kingdom of heaven on earth. That's the church. We are a visible representation of that. Our oneness is not just for our own benefit. It's not just so that church goes well, which I, we love when it does. But our, our oneness is bigger than just us. God wants to use us as a church to be a light to the world. I love the songs we had this morning. Send the light. Who is the light? We're going to look at that here just a little bit yet. Who is the light? Oneness so that the world may know. Now take the opposite of that. Division. Disunity. A lack of oneness. What does that tell the world? In the book that we're studying Wednesday nights, Gary Miller talks about bones and muscles. And he talks about the way often division in the church happens along fault lines like that. Just people are different. Some of them are, you know, a bit more rigid and they don't like to see change and all the different things the way he describes it. And we tend to split along those lines. And what happens, what happens to the witness that Christ wants from the church when we do that? When he calls us to oneness, which takes love, it takes work, it takes all the hard work of, of church life, but it's not just so that church goes well, it's so that the world has a representation. It's a little bit like he has, the way he talks about marriage in Ephesians. Marriage is a representation of Christ and the, and the church, that, that bond between husband and wife. Well, then a church is a representation of what the kingdom of heaven is all about. And so he says when we are one, he wants us to be one, so that the world can look and say, oh, that's different. Why is it different? What makes it different? Where does the power come from? How do they do that? And so that, that representation, that's part of his prayer for us in unity, I believe. Unity, or oneness, like he calls it in this passage, in the brotherhood is a means by which the world will see a visible demonstration of the love of God through his son Jesus to us and by our love for each other. That's how the world's going to see it. It's the visible representation that the kingdom of heaven is here and that God is present in it. So our vision for fellowship at Sandy Ridge in particular, we could say this for the broader church, but let's, let's bring it to home. Our vision for a close-knit fellowship here must extend beyond these walls. Because if, if all we want to have is a, is, a, is a close club where we're close and we're just feeding ourselves at some point, I think you turn inward. I think that's where division, that's where uh, different things begin to happen. But our mission is to be a light to the world. And so what we have here, what we can experience here, what we work towards here is so that not others can see, but that we invite others into it. Come see, come and join us. Come be part of this. The word community is a bit of a buzzword right now. Uh, I've heard community quite a bit. Uh, we talk about it some at school and the way we talk about the future of the school uh, we hear about it in communities. Some, in, well, I say I use the word right there. In our towns, we talk about you know close communities. Uh, you see it in social media. You know all these communities, these groups of people, and so I think somewhat intuitively, people desire to be part of something. They want to be part of something meaningful and something that's bigger than themselves. So community is a good thing. But in in the church, um, we're, we're representing something bigger, something bigger than just a club you can join. It's something bigger than just Come here and your needs will be met. We are part of God's kingdom. And while there is love and there is acceptance and those things in, in the church or in the fellowship, 
we are pointing them to God and to the one who can give them joy. So our community as a church is different. It's a different kind of community than what we see elsewhere. I think, I believe today, and, and I know, I, I, think, I think the devil is, is at work in the church today. Not just our church, but in, the, in these last days, the church is going to face more and more opposition. I firmly believe that. It's not an accident that we have struggles and that um, things can go be difficult at times. We have an enemy. But I believe in, in spite of the struggles and the hiccups, I am becoming more convinced that I believe our church, Sandy Ridge, I believe other Anabaptist churches, churches that are faithfully be, uh, trying to follow the Lord, I believe we are poised to offer the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ through faithful, loving communities of believers. And people see that, and they can be drawn to that. It can be a beacon, but we have to be living this out in practical living. We demonstrate the values of God's kingdom by the way we love each other and by the way we live our lives, and it can draw people to us. And so, so many times it seems like our our focus, and this happens to me, our focus it turns inward on, on who we are and, and just about who we are as a church and you know, how do we move forward. We, we think about those things, but our vision must be beyond that. What is God trying to do in the church? And what, does he want, what is our mission in all that? We have an opportunity to model the vision of Jesus. His vision is to seek and to save those who are lost. That's why he came. He was looking for those who wanted to be saved, who were lost. And so that's what our vision has to be as well. Seeing beyond our no, own needs for fellowship to the opportunity we have to invite the lonely, the isolated, and the hurting people in our neighborhoods to come and receive the love of God. It is difficult to offer what we don't have. It has to be real in us. God has to be doing his work in us. It's hard to offer a sense of community when we're struggling with it in our own, in our own selves and in our own body here. It takes hard work for deep, vulnerable, loving, trusting relationships. But I think it's worth shooting for. Again, not for our own consumption only, but so that the world can see. God likes to, to use us as his mouthpiece to the world. What are some of the ideals of the kingdom of heaven? I've actually been considering, I, I almost went that route this morning, of, of starting to look at the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount and, and what did Jesus intend when he talked to his when he when he introduced the kingdom of God he introduced the sermon on the mount to people i think the reaction jesus got back then is the same reaction people have today ugh that's just not practical it's just not attainable you know you start to read the things that jesus said and i think to those who were hearing it for the first time you think about the oppression they were facing from the romans think about all those people who were seeing their enemies just pouncing on them all the time. Um, Rome was very brutal. They brought about a Roman peace, but it came through aggression, and it came through the, uh, the heavy hand. And so people that were under that yoke were just ready for a change. They were ready to be set free. And then Jesus comes along and says, well, you turn the other cheek. If they tell you to pick up their pack and go a mile, you go two miles. And imagine the feelings as Jesus starts to introduce that. And at this time, as I understand uh, the Gospels, at this time, Jesus still has a pretty big following. And there's a lot of buzz going around about this man. And then he starts to say things like that. Love your enemies. You know, do good to those who hate you. you. Imagine the turmoil that brought to some of these people. Like, that doesn't make sense. 
How can that be? And yet Jesus never backed away from what the kingdom was going to be like. And so as we, as we look at these, sometimes in some ways we can look at what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount and say, well, that's not even attainable. Well, no, by ourselves it's not. But it still is. It's what the kingdom of heaven is. And so when we as a church are living out these principles, we are demonstrating to the world that it's not us. It has to be God within us. It has to be his working in us. And it's, it's his love that makes us possible to love our enemies and all those different things he talks about. Well, this is re- actually right after the, uh, the Beatitudes. I actually jumped ahead a little bit in Matthew chapter 5 because as we think about a vision beyond ourselves, I like to use the word light this morning. And this is part of his sermon. He says, Matthew 5, 14 to 16, Ye are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick, and it giveth light unto all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. You are the light. He does not say, be the light. He does not say, become the light. Isn't that interesting? You are the light. Jesus has no other representation on this earth. It's you. It's me. Now, he says you can cover it. You can put a bushel over it and hide it. But you're the light. So whatever, whatever we are is the light that we give. Whether that be dim, whether that be hidden, or whether it be radiant, you are the light of the world. Jesus intends that we, as his children... And as the church, we have that visible demonstration, but it's by our lives that we are shining our lights for him. You are, you are the light of the world. It's been said before, darkness is the absence of light, right? Pretty basic. At night when the sun goes down, it gets dark. There is no light. I kind of like to go to Menards sometimes, and I'm sure you do too, for maybe different reasons. But one thing I always notice about Menards when you drive in there, you ever notice how they've done their light displays inside where all the, where all the lights are, you know, they have a, a big thing set up. And often you can see those from outside the store. For some reason they have windows. I think it's in almost every store. They have windows on the outside so that when you drive in, there's just a blaze of light coming out. And then you walk in and all these light fixtures are there and, you know, it overwhelms you and you don't know what to get and then you leave and don't buy anything. Kind of like that. But there's so much light, and I always think when I, when I go in there and see that, it's just, whoa, it's overwhelming. But you have all this light in one place, and it, it's just, there's not, a, there's not a speck of darkness to be seen, right? So that's great. That's great to have all that light in one place. But what impact does it have if you take all the lights out of that store? Let's say you take that whole display down, and you go into a very dark place, the absence of light, darkness. And what if you put each of those lights individually in a dark place. How much impact does that have? It actually has quite a bit. Now, a lot of light in one place, it gives a lot of light, but how much more light can there be when that light shines in darkness? And I, I think that's what we're called to, to be and to do. I'm glad we're all here this morning. There's a lot of light here this morning, but you're going to leave here after church, and you're going to go home, and you probably won't be back for another week. All the light leaves the church. We all go our separate ways. Now, some of us, some of you will be shining brightly this week. Some of you might be a little dim. I don't know. Some of you might be struggling with shame. You're ashamed to be a light, and so you just cover it up. Hopefully no one finds out at work that I'm a Christian, you know. 
Now here he says, when you have a light, you put it on a candlestick. Not only do you light the light, you get it up where it can be seen. And, and here he actually mentions works. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works. We actually are called to good works. Ephesians talks about that. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. So as God does what he, his work in you, he's created you for good works, and it's not for your glory. It says that they're going to glorify your Father which is in heaven. So when we are unashamed to be a light, we're unashamed to speak of the truth. We're unashamed to represent Jesus where we're at. He says they're going to glorify your Father. They're going to recognize it for what it is, and that's what they're going to be drawn to. Let's not be ashamed. Let's not be ashamed to be light. When we lived in Belize almost 20 years ago, uh, one day, I knew of this lady already, but one day we were at the Belize uh, the airport there, the main airport, and I met this lady there, and a Mennonite lady, and she was an older woman, and introduced herself and discovered that her name was Miss Nancy, and there's actually a book written about her if you would like to read it. It's very interesting. Nancy Koblenz is her name. I don't even know her well. I've only, I only met her one time, but I heard stories about her, and she lived in Belize City for many years. I looked up her bio just yesterday, and it said she didn't move down there till she was 35 years old, so she was already, you know, uh, along in life and had some other experiences and she went down there and by the time we met her she was probably in her 70s already and had been there for you know close to 40 years but something about her testimony just blessed me and it does to this day a single woman I don't even know what all her role was she's part of AMA the mission down there I don't know how she started out there probably some of you know her story better than I do but after all these decades of faithful service you could say well what What's one, she grew up Amish, what's one Amish woman going to do in, this, in a country like Belize? She's known by prime ministers. She's known by people on the street. She's known by the Christian community. Her name is known throughout, I think she moved back now, maybe retired. I'm not quite sure where her life ended up. But after all those years, a faithful woman, probably not a, not a lot of splash, not a lot of dramatic things going on, but she is known as a light in the middle of a very dark, sinful place. That impressed me. Now, it doesn't mean she wasn't without spunk. I heard a story about her, how we used to have people, when they come to Belize, they'd bring us cheese because cheese was so hard to, to come by, or good cheese. I think it's better now than it used to be. But So people would bring cheese down, and sometimes customs would give you a hassle. Sometimes they would just let you go. Well, I heard a story one time about her that she brought a big horn of cheese into the country. And as she went through customs, they said, no, no, you can't have that. We're going to have to confiscate that. And she says, no, she wanted to take it in. No. So she said, okay. And so she starts to cut it open, and, and she took a bite. She's going to eat that thing right then and there. And they finally relented and said, fine, just take it. So Somebody was going to eat that in the back room. We, we know it, right? <laughs> a light, unashamed to be who she was. And today her, her testimony lives on. Well, that's one person. What about you? What about me? Are you willing to stand out? And what makes us ashamed? Why would we put our light under a bushel? Isn't it because of shame? Are you ashamed to be identified as a Christian? Are you ashamed to be identified as a Mennonite? Our light is hidden when we are ashamed to be identified with God's people. 
Let them see your good works, but don't take the glory. When someone gives you praise and glory and they see something different in your life, they're like, oh, we're so impressed with you or we're impressed with your family. And if you've been out with your family and people have approached you, sometimes that's, that's happened to us before. Oh, they're so impressed. You know, we could kind of say, well, good. Yeah, I'm, I guess I am doing pretty good. You know, we're doing well. No, give God the glory. Point it to God and say, it is only because of the hope we have in Jesus that we are who we are. Praise God that the light shines. Bless you. Give God the glory. Don't take credit for what God is doing in your life. You are the light, but the light that you have, the source is God. All right? You have no light on your own. The light that you have is only because of God working within you and his Holy Spirit's presence in you. Three things as we close. These ideals, how do we live them out? How, do we do, how are we light? First one I want to say is shine, shine naturally. This is not something we fake. Don't just try to be light. It must come from within you. The story of Stephen, the first martyr, as he's, as he's brought before the council and they are hurling accusations at him and he's about to give his defense. It says that all who looked on his face, they saw his face and it looked like the face of an angel. Now, if I saw someone... I don't know how, how I would know that their face looks like an angel. I've never seen an angel to my knowledge. I mean, I might have, but, but there was something about it that it made them think angel. Like, I don't know what, what's there. Did Stephen decide in the moment, you know, it's time to be a witness, time to be a testimony, let me get my angel face on? Absolutely not. It says he was filled with the Holy Ghost, and as he began to speak, his face radiated something, but it also created a fierce anger in those who were opposing him to the point that they... They ran upon him and they killed him. But shine naturally. If your face, if your, if your life is not able to shine, then, then ask the Lord, what's going on? Why is there no radiance in my life? All right, this isn't something we put on, but it must be produced from, from God and what he's doing in our hearts. A second thing about shining, this is about the light, is to shine sacrificially. You know, a light in a dark place, a candle as it burns, it may seem to be steady and it may seem to be constant, but what is happening is the wick is burning down, actually, and the, the wax is being melted. When a bulb, we have all kinds of bulbs in here this morning, oh, they seem to be, they're, they're constantly are giving light, and we might say, they'll give light forever. Well, no, they're actually, they will burn out. Being a light is not, it, it's, it requires sacrifice. It's not always easy to be a light. It's not always easy to be faithful, and it's going to cost you something to be faithful day after day. It's like Miss Nancy. Her reputation in, the, in Belize City did not happen in a week. It probably didn't even happen in a year. It happened after year after year after year of faithfulness. And I'm not exalting her as a saint. I don't know that she had any special powers beyond the, the power of the Holy Spirit. But that continual faithfulness and sacrificing day after day, um, you know, it can wear us out. Many of you know the story already of, this was centuries ago, back in the Roman, uh, Roman times in the Colosseum. The, uh, the Colosseum, of course, was known as, it was kind of the center or the, the epicenter of, of Roman power. And if you've ever been in the city of Rome and you go see the Colosseum, it's not, and it's, it's not like it used to be. All right, when you go inside it, there's a lot of the erosion has happened and there's a lot of stuff that's not that great. We were in there as, as youth group many years ago. But it still stands. The ruins of that stand today. But in its, in its climax, it was quite a place. And it was a place where the Romans went to feed their insatiable desire for blood. And this happened through the games, through gladiators. It happened with Christians being brought in and turning wild beasts on them. 
and all this brutality was happening in there. Well, one day, um, in the middle, there was some gladiator games going on, and as, I, as the story goes, and there's different versions of the story, but as the story goes, this was as a result of a Roman victory over the Goths. This was about AD, uh, AD 370, and throw, so to celebrate their big victory, they just have a brutal uh, gladiator games going on in the Colosseum, and men you know, men killing each other and, and all for blood sport and the crowd, crowd going crazy. Well, in the middle of this spectacle, a lone figure comes and he interrupts the proceedings. And it's said he had come all the way from Asia to Rome. He was covered with a mantle. He was a Christian. He had heard about all these barbaric entertainments and he intended to put a stop to them. And so he shoved his way to the edge of the arena. He jumped into the middle where every eye could see him. And as the gladiators were going at it, he came up to them and he advanced and he got between two gladiators who were engaged in mortal combat. And it says that he turned and he faced the crowd and he raised his voice saying, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, King of kings and Lord of lords, I command these wicked games to cease. Do not requite God's mercy by shedding innocent blood. Well, the crowd was not pleased, and they began to hurl things at him. They says pieces of fruit, stones, daggers, all kinds of projectiles were hurled from the stands at this man. One of the gladiators, as the story goes, who expected to hear the applause of the crowd, raised his weapon and brought it down on the head of this man. This man's name was Telemachus, and he dropped to the ground dead, lifeless. And it says, as he sunk to the lifeless to the ground, the angry cries of the crowd died away into a profound silence in the arena. As the life's blood of this new martyr joined the blood of thousands who had bled there before him, the crowd suddenly faced a courage that was greater than the strongest gladiator. The work of this Christian was accomplished. From the hour of his martyrdom, the gladiator, gladiatorial games ceased. And this comes, this is according to Fox's Book of Martyrs, if you've ever read any stories in there. He says in there, he says, from the day Telemachus fell dead in the Colosseum, no other fight of gladiators was ever held there. Did it come at a price? Absolutely. Shining sacrificially. Are we willing to step in? It would seem like a hopeless cause, if you think about it. One man against an empire? How can one man ever make a difference? He did, but it cost him everything. It cost him his life. Shine for Jesus and do it sacrificially. There's a, a picture there of Christians. Many of you have probably seen this image before of Christians gathered. Behind them are poles with victims held on it. They were doused in oil and lit on fire for the pleasure of the, of the emperor, and wild beasts were turned on those people. And it's in this atmosphere that a courageous man steps in and says, enough, evil must be stopped. And he gave his life. And the last point here, shine openly. You all know the story. I'm not going to look, I'm not even going to read it out of the scriptures here. Peter and John, they heal a man on the way to the temple. They heal a man. The man jumps up. He's leaping. He's praising God. All these things are happening. And of course, this, cause, this causes quite a stir, quite a stir. And those who, who saw it and observed it uh, priests, Sadducees, they were not impressed and they were very threatened by what was happening there. So they locked up Peter and John and the next day they brought them before the council and this is the question they asked. By what power have you done this? By what power or by what name have you done this? 
Well, this is prime opportunity, right? This is a prime opportunity, and Peter and John took the opportunity. And they said, by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. And it says that when the people heard this, it says they saw the boldness of Peter and John. And they took note of them, that they had been with Jesus. They saw their courage. And then it goes on to say that as the council said, what shall we do? We can't, we can't argue about what happened. Clearly, this thing happened. It says they could say nothing about it. In fact, they said, we, they acknowledge, we cannot deny it. So we will threaten them and tell them to stop doing this. Well, they did that. And this is the testimony of Peter and John. They say, we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. We cannot help it. We have to speak the things that we have seen and heard. Shine openly. Be unashamed of what Jesus has done in your life. Be unashamed of who he is and what he's done for all of us. And don't forget this truth, brothers and sisters. We are the light of the world. You may be the only light that someone will ever see. So the question for us this morning is, is your light hidden or are you shining brightly? Shall we pray? Thank you, Father, for giving us the light of Jesus Christ, first of all. Lord, illuminating our hearts, giving us hope, reconciling us to you. Lord, you've accomplished your work, and then you left us here, and you said that we are the light of the world. Father, I pray for each of us this morning as we evaluate are we being the light that you've called us to be? And Lord, as we think about our fellowship here as a church and that you've called us to be light in the world and that you've, you've desired us to be one so that the world may see, Lord, I pray that you would expand our vision. Lord, help us to see beyond what happens be in, uh, within these four walls, but to see your purpose, Lord, to see that your kingdom is advancing. And Lord, you are wanting us to be a represent, representation of that kingdom. Lord, give us courage when we are ashamed and Lord, I just pray you'd fill us with your love and just a passion for you so that others may see and that others may give you glory. So thank you again, Lord, for your truth. We want to be faithful to you and what you call us to. In the worthy name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.